Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, episode number 266 with Katrina Webb. How are you, Katrina? Oh, fantastic. I am, I'm so impressed. 266. That is amazing. Well oh, done, you. <laughs> thank you very much. And well, I'm very impressed with what we're going to talk about today. And I think I've watched the TED Talk back to back. I watched yours and I was blown away by the messaging. And I think it was so powerful. I watched it again. And for people listening here, I will have links in the show notes. Go and watch this after we talk today, because I think it's a message everybody needs to really digest because it doesn't matter what you're going through in life. I think people are holding back on something. So before we get into everything, Katrina, I want to talk about what was your, what was your childhood like? Let's talk, start there. Uh, look, I had a fabulous childhood, actually. Um, I grew up in, in South Australia, in the city of Adelaide until year five, and then year six, I moved to Murray Bridge. Um, so then had a couple of years at primary school in the country and then did all of my high school there, which I loved because my mum was originally from a farming community. So I got to have the good opportunity of, you know, my dad being the city and then experiencing country living and you know, in the country, um, even though Murray Bridge is, you know, 25,000 people, it was uh, really lovely to be a part of a community. And uh, growing up for us, sport wasn't a choice. It was compulsory. My dad was a very good good, uh, footballer. And some people might know my mum's maiden name, which is Spawn. And depending on where you come from in Australia, you might remember Rachel Spawn, the Olympic basketballer, or Kieran or Trent Spawn, who played AFL football. That's my mum's side of the family. So, we had uh, good sporting success in our genes and it was compulsory, which I have three sons now and it's the same rule. We don't care how how far they go in sport. My husband happens to be an Olympian as well. So people probably think we will put expectations on our kids. Um, we just love the fact that they do sport because it brings so much. Um, you learn so much um, and it connects you to a wonderful community. So that was my upbringing. Um, you know, pretty, pretty normal, actually, pretty normal childhood, um, born into a great supportive family, involved in sport and school. Probably the thing that was different, though, Dale, was that um, I, I was diagnosed as having a, um, had suffered a very mild injury to my brain when I was three, which is, which I then found out was called cerebral palsy when I was 18. So, but from age three, I knew that I had something wrong. Um, I can't curl my right toes. I can't point my right foot very well or do a calf raise. And I had to wear a night plaster to bed every night on my right leg from age three until I stopped growing. Um, and for me, as of age five, I you know started to go to school. I, um, I saw other kids wearing plaster and, you know, kids wear plaster at school because they're broken an arm or a leg. And, you know, our minds are really powerful. And my little mind said to me, gee, you have to wear a plaster every night. You must be pretty broken. Mm-hmm. And as a young kid, when I said that to myself internally, I, I now know what I felt was shame because shame is that, that feeling of you know, not being good enough or there's something wrong with you. And I didn't like that feeling. So I thought, oh, what, what can I do to get rid of it? How about I go and tell mum and dad that we just don't tell anybody that there's something wrong with me? Um, and you actually can't really see my, my cerebral palsy. Um, so when I asked my parents, could we just keep it our secret? They said, yes. Then I just went about hiding it as much as I could so people wouldn't know that I was different. So think about that then. Here I am. I've had a wonderful childhood. Um, 
very supportive, loving parents that, um, you know, they did, they did do that thing called healthy neglect well, which, um, <laughs> which I think is missing a bit from our society now, making sure that, you know, as kids we grew well, fell over and picked ourselves back and moved on with love and support. But then at the same time, my childhood was working incredibly hard to cover up something I didn't like about myself. Yeah, and I just there's so many things that I, I want to digest in there. And one is obviously I grew up in a, a regional town in country Victoria, and life was all about you know community around sports clubs. And I think that's it's so beautiful, and that's what you're saying there. You know that it's not forced upon you, but all the lessons and the way you develop and all the way you socialize, it's really got a lot to do with that, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. It is. I mean, it's the heartbeat of a town, isn't it? Um, sport. And, um, and and I think, as you said, even if it's not the, the, the sport that's going on, it's the relationships that get, get developed. It's the people that you learn to um, meet and be supported by. And I, even when I, with my success as, a, as an athlete, uh, Murray Bridge was so proud of me and still are. You know, I have a tree planted in my name oh, in the main nice. street. Um, they, one of the jewelers, when I won my first gold, made a ring for me. And then in the whole jewelry store, put well done, Katrina, Golden Atlanta. And, and I'd never experienced that. Like when you grow up in a big city, um, you're a part of a council, but they, even as an athlete being successful in Adelaide, I didn't get that level of support where growing up in Murray Bridge and then having the success I did. Gee, they were fantastic at getting behind my success. I, I love that. And I think anybody listening that uh, has grown up in a, in a small town or in a regional town, I would say, and then goes back home, you still see the same people and you get that familiar vibe and it's beautiful. So let's get back to you and up, growing up, though, and, and hiding something. And I think, uh, like you were saying before, with shame, I think Brene Brown really sums that up really well. And I'm sure you're very much a, a, along with her work. But how, how did you go? Because you were an elite young netball at 18, you were in AIS and... Like that's no mean feat considering you had a more like how how do you, how were you able to get over that because or or hide it like you must have been yeah. a master of disguise yeah you know what dale i look back on myself and i have so much um admiration for my young self actually oh, you know i'm so 45 now and and you know when you're younger you're going through it and you just do it right like you you either have the skills to do it um, and then you develop them as you go along. Or if you didn't have them and it was too much, you don't do it. So I obviously had had the skills. In fact, I did a talk last week to an organisation and one of the staff came up to me and was talking about her daughter with a disability and she asked me this question, do you think um, you develop more resilience by having a disability? And Because I see that in my daughter. And I said, gosh, absolutely. Mm. Like you, you're developing it without even knowing it. And um, so, yeah, it was an interesting time for me when I think back to it. Um, look, I had definitely had um, some genetic uh, talent. Um, I'm very coordinated. And my mind could read the sport. So in netball, I, I could read the sport very well. So that helped me. Um, so having some good genes and a mind that could read the play really well, um, you know, put me ahead of my peers from a very young age. I, I just didn't train once a week like everyone else did, though. For me to, to actually learn how my body could do something and get good at it, I would have to go out and do more sessions than everybody else. And so I learned to work hard and then combine that with me then trying to prove to people I was good enough. So 
look, I don't know whether I was born with that skill or whether because I was trying to hide my disability, I, you know, I learned how to work really hard to actually show people that I was good enough. That combination helped me to be, you know, be successful. I made it up through you know, country netball teams and then state state country teams and then I made state teams and I made national squads and went to nationals and I made all Australian squads for netball for my age group, which, as you said, was extraordinary because this is an able-bodied world. Um, so there was some, some really good skill sets there that helped me to, you know, to be successful and I had incredible people supporting me. Some of the coaches that I had... And I know in particular, Marg Angove, who's very well known in the sporting scene, particularly in South Australia, she saw me as a whole athlete. She actually saw, she saw my mental performance skills. She saw my empathy, my encouragement, my compassion. She saw all of that, not just the physical Katrina. And I'm incredibly grateful to her and I've, and I've written to her on numerous occasions with so much gratitude because she really backed me and supported my success as getting into the AIS in 1995 on an able-bodied netball scholarship. So, you know, there was, it was me working hard and, you know, a wonderful group of people around me, coaches, parents, supporters. Um, so, you know, that was you know, a fabulous time. Um, interesting statistic, Dale, there's 4.4 million people in Australia with a disability. And I don't know if you knew this one, but 90% of it is hidden or invisible. Wow. I didn't know that. That is. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And so when, when you say that, is that because people don't want to acknowledge that or they're, like you said before, they're scared of being judged or. Yeah, well, you just can't, you just can't, yeah, well, that's so you just can't see it. Like for Mm. me, even when I'm walking around, people don't notice I have cerebral palsy, right? Like my left side functions like an able-bodied person, my right side has cerebral palsy. So I, I find it so fascinating to live in a body. It's a bit like yin and yang for me that my left side does what, what an able-bodied person's body does and my right side, you know, doesn't. And it's so fascinating um, to live in that. And I can walk around day to day. You might see me limp. If you looked at my calf muscles, uh, if I was wearing a skirt, you'd notice if you looked really carefully that my right calf was thinner than my left. So you actually have to, it's not completely hidden. You can actually see mine if you look for it. Um, this is just people having a disability that is is hidden. So, you know, and that does include mental um, mm. illness. So that's a hidden disability. Someone might have um, a, a back injury that, or, you know, back complications classified as a disability that people don't see. There's so many that people don't see. Um, for so long, I thought it was the other way around. I thought that 90% of disability was visible, um, and when I saw that statistic, I went, wow, okay, that's why people maybe are getting my story. You know, I've been speaking since 1996. That's why people hear my message because as human beings, whether you have a disability or not, we, we hide stuff because we're frightened about what people think about our, you know, our differences. Oh, that, if there's not, nothing more powerful than what you just said, Katrina, I think everybody has hidden something along their way. And you, you'll know this more than anybody because you get up there and share your story and by you being vulnerable and allowing that space, it actually allows people to think, oh, it's okay, maybe I can share. Um, that It is a really alarming stat. And like you just said, 90, I'd say most people with mental health, particularly it's such a big thing because we don't talk about it. We don't tell anyone. We, we, just, we just try and get on with it. We suffer in silence. And, and that's why, you know, talking about things and what you do is incredible but the one thing I really want to know is like you were saying before you can 
operate normally. You can walk around day to day. Nobody would know. It was as an 18 year old, when you're at the top of your game, was that probably the hardest thing to digest that you are so able you can play, but by labeling this, you weren't getting picked. And like, that must've been so challenging above everything else when you had been top of everything. And then for some reason, people would label you or said, you can't do this. And now you weren't getting picked here. How did you overcome that? Because that's a really tough thing as an 18 year old to really handle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was super tough and it probably goes the other, it probably went in the other order. You know, I did get labeled, which didn't mean I couldn't play anymore. Um, what it, so at the AIS in 1995, I found out what I you know, thought I was hiding was actually called cerebral palsy. So nothing changed. It did, like you said, got a, put a label on it. Um, the first thing that happened to the AIS is I got a significant knee injury on my right side, you know, with increased court time. I was sidelined for 10 weeks and I'd never been injured before. So that was my first thing that I had to deal with in that year. And then, it, then I actually started not getting picked for the team. So once I got back on the court, we had 12 girls in our team. Only 10 would ever travel because even then you've got three sitting on the bench with seven on the court. Um, and once I got back on the, you know, back after getting over my illness, I didn't get picked to travel with the team. And so I'd go, okay, I'm getting back into it. I'll go and work even harder because my my only tool when I think back to that, yes, I, ha- I could read well the sport in my mind. I was an incredibly hard worker. That that was the, t- the only tool that I had in my kit to stay at that level. And, you know, at the AIS, we were playing in, you know, in the Australian, the best, you know, netball league in Australia. We had a team in that, and that's one of the best in the world. So here I am in one, playing in one of the best competitions in the world. And it was hard. Like <laughs> I found it really hard. And so I'd go back and work really hard. Then I'd get, you know, I'd hope my name would get picked for the team and it, and it never did. And that was really difficult to digest. And it, it, yes, the coach didn't pick me because I wasn't good enough. And it was the truth, which was really hard to, to take because they say whoever they may be that hard work always pays off. And I tell you what, it didn't like nothing. Yeah nothing could help me in this situation. I couldn't fix the way I was like no more hard work. In fact, with cerebral palsy, if you work too hard, you can get fatigued too much. So you actually actually have the opposite Opposite effect. Yeah. And I found that really difficult because in my own mind for those 18 years, I was, you know, I was saying I wasn't good enough and I have to prove to people that I am. So then this was the first time in my life that an external coach said to me, you're not good enough. That's the bit I found difficult because I, mm. I couldn't do anything. I just had to, you know, I had to, I had to suck it up and go. This sucks. Like this, there's nothing else I can do. I don't, I didn't, I didn't really have a choice then. Um, and it just ironic how it all happened is that because I got labelled having cerebral palsy by this is the interesting story, the coach who was training the next lot of athletes to go to the Atlanta Paralympic Games, he was he's called Chris Nunn. He he's the one that noticed my cerebral palsy straight away. So I'm walking around the AIS, and he's just happened to walk behind me and wow yeah she she, he was you know he noticed it he's trained to look for people like me and back in 1995 there was no talent search for the Paralympic Games and if you had a disability you were often playing able-bodied sport and doing successful in it there's quite a few of us that got recruited from playing high level um able-bodied sport and Chris followed me and and he noticed it straight away so can you imagine (laughs) when when we did a few tests and it was confirmed that what I had was cerebral palsy he couldn't believe his luck like He's like, oh, he would have he hit the jackpot. He won lottery. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he did. 
<laughs> you hit the jackpot. So, you know, that was the, that that happened on top of all of this. So I had an injury, then I wasn't getting picked for the team. And then I find out that I have cerebral palsy, which is a, a disability group in the Paralympics. You know, they were way, they were there way before me. Um, my type of cerebral palsy, there was women like me competing in the Paralympics for a long time before I came in. Um, a lot of people sort of think I just come in and then I, you know, I'm a good athlete and I just come into the Paralympics. They were way there before me. Um, and so, you know, then Chris said to me, if you get classified, which, you know, I have to have enough cerebral palsy, then once I once I realised I've got enough, they classify you so you compete against people um, on a level playing field. So I'd compete against women as close to me as possible. And then I needed to qualify, of course. Netball's not in the Olympics or Paralympics and it wasn't going that great for me anyway. So he was an athletics coach. So he's like, you know, if you come to our sport, you you could come with us um, if that all works out in a year's time to the Atlanta Paralympic Games. So that, what a year. Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> like life is pretty tough, particularly, you know, as an 18 year old becoming an adult anyway, but talk yeah. about like, it's like every week there was something new happening to you. Like that's incredible. It was a big year. It was a big year. And this, you know, when someone comes up and I didn't even know anything about the Paralympics back then, like you think this is 1995. A lot of people didn't know much about it either, not compared to what it is now. I mean, yeah. I worked with the team in Channel 7. Like I got to, you know, and we won a Logie the other week um, for the, you know, the work we did with the Olympics and Paralympics at 7. That's how far it's come. But in 1995, no one really knew about it, including me. And for me, I wasn't at all afraid about the Paralympic Games. For me, when I had a decision to make about whether I would go, the thing that I was worried about the most was exposing myself you know I I didn't like this thing about myself and I had worked so hard at hiding it that I knew that if I went to a Paralympic Games and I was a Paralympian people would know straight away wherever I went that there was something different about me and I I didn't like that feeling and I didn't have any tools in my kit though to find another way mm. um, so it was a really interesting situation to be faced with. So that that was the hardest part, not, not actually qualifying to be an Olympian. Like that was the easy part. And it's probably, it's probably the same, like you were saying that the one mechanism you've had your whole life is you'll out train, you'll outwork, you'll outwork everybody. But now that's the thing you can't do because it'll actually be a detriment to you. So it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Like a lot of people would say, I'd love to go to the Olympics. Physical side is the hard part, not the mental. Whereas you're the other way around. You don't want to admit because you're worried about people thinking something of you. Like, and how do you describe that? Like, and how do you overcome that in a year? Like, that's crazy. Yeah, well, even the way you just said that, I mean, when listeners are listening to that, isn't that what drives most of our decisions when you really think about it? When we when we have an opportunity or to do something differently, uh, you know, the first thing often we think about is what people will think about me. Will I will I make a mistake? Will I fail? Will I what will they think I'm good enough, expert enough, whatever that is? Um, and you know, our mind is a fascinating thing you know I've studied it a lot now and I do teach a lot in terms of mental performance and mental health and well-being now I spend majority of my week um, teaching skills around it that I learned as an athlete and I learned to really get through this situation Um, and you know mind is incredibly powerful and um, for me in this situation I was you know when we come across a situation we're so easy to look for the threats and the dangers and the negatives our brains do that so well and that's what I felt straight away. And I, and I could hear myself thinking about was all of that. 
And for me in this situation, to help me try and work through it and make a good decision about how to move forward, Chris Nunn suggested that I speak to a sports psychologist so I could actually really look at this decision and not take it lightly and make sure I made the right decision. He said, why don't you go and speak to somebody? Why don't you go speak to a sports psychologist? And for me, I said, what a great idea. I didn't even think twice about it because I'd come through the South Australian Sports Institute and sport, you know, psychologist was a part of my, a psychologist was part of my team. And I saw a psychologist as someone that could really help me perform mentally. And I just knew that was the right place for me to be. So I sat down with a psychologist and, you know, he took me through a wonderful process of thinking about my thinking, which I now know. Um, is called metacognition. You know, we take the time to think about our thinking. And you know, how often when, if you haven't thought about your thinking a lot or done a lot of work on yourself, and maybe a lot of people are unaware of how much their thinking gets in the way. Oh, <laughs> their <big> thinking. Time. <laughs> and how much we make up stuff, um, you know, the stories we tell ourselves about stuff that hasn't even happened. I often say to people um, in the past, I didn't need anyone to sabotage me because I could do such a good job of it myself. I now have really good tools in my kit to, to quieten that down and to be my best friend. I had to learn to become my, my best mate, my best friend. And so, you know, to, to sit down with a psychologist and to really put my thinking on the table, um, yes, there was worries and there was negatives, but what, what happened, which was incredibly special, is when I looked at the opportunities and, posit and positives, I heard you say it before, like I'd actually gone to the AIS to achieve everything that was written out in front of me. Like I, I was an excellent athlete. I just needed another sport. Like I had all those skills. So for me, I wanted to represent my country. I wanted to travel. I wanted to be the best I could be in sport. Um, all of that, when I wrote down all the positives about going to a Paralympic Games, was actually what I wanted to achieve as a netballer. What was different was the packaging. And that was an amazing lesson for me is when you have clarity over, you know, what drives you, what are your guiding principles and what are your goals? If you can see them in front of you and the packaging is different, what does it matter? And how many opportunities are people missing out on because they get so fixed on the packaging? Oof. And, yeah, in that moment I just thought, wow, this is where I'm meant to be. Did it make it easy? No. Um, I remember this deep thought and question I asked myself. I said, why? Why, why do I hate being different so much? And I asked this at age 18 because I was so exhausted, Dale. Like at that point, I was tired and exhausted of trying to cover up. Like if you saw me in 1995 and I was limping and you said, you hurt yourself, I'd go, yeah, my knee's sore. Then Dale would have to remember I told you my knee was sore because then you're going to check in in a couple of weeks' time. So I was wasting my magnificent cognitive capacity on covering up something for what reason? And I remember thinking, for what am I doing this? This isn't working for me. If I go to a Paralympic Games, I still get to be the athlete I wanted to be. In fact, if I go to the sport of track and field and I run a time, I'm in a team. So get out of a subjective sport where a coach picks you. I want to go to a, you know, objective sport where there's a time, I'm in a team and I get to choose. And if I go to a Paralympic Games, I want to be able to be on a podcast like this in the future and be able to tell people how much... I love the fact that I'm a Paralympian. I want to be an incredibly proud one, which meant I needed to find ways to learn and love all of myself. And as I said, I didn't have those tools in my kit. I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. I just knew going to the Paralympics was the right thing to do and I would find those tools along the way. So, um, yeah, that's how I got involved. I There's so much again, Katrina. I absolutely love about <laughs> that. And I think there's people listening to this that, 
the way we talk to ourselves is horrible. You know, we put ourselves down. We're so negative. We'd never say it to anybody else. And people are a bit nodding along if they're running, riding, driving, wherever they are. For you to actually be able to flip that around and become your best friend, um, that's huge. But then also taking that weight off your shoulder of acting because that's what you've essentially done since the age of three yeah um you know or what five or whenever you told your parents that we're we're not going to label this we're not going to tell anyone you've essentially been putting a mask on every day it must have been liberating to throw that weight off uh yeah it was liberating and it didn't it didn't happen straight away when you know this this was a progression because there was quite a few things i had to get through in that um I can tell you now, you know, sometime later, it has been absolutely liberating. It's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life when Chris Nunn walked behind me that day. <laughs> and um, I'm so grateful because not only did I, yeah, not only did I get to go to, you know, I've been to six Paralympics now. I did three as an athlete, but I've been to three as an ambassador and, and you know, worked with um, Channel 7 like what a gift and yes I got to win medals and be successful as an athlete but I actually got tools in that story you know in that progression of being an athlete because the interesting thing is as a gold medalist and someone who had to get to a gold medal level I worked with psychologists a lot and I worked a lot on my thinking um, and my self-confidence and my ability to focus, but also when I wasn't nice to myself or didn't believe in myself or was saying stuff that was getting in the way, what I could do to work around that. And they were the exact tools I needed to address my disability, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, and what really saddens me and what really drives my work today is those tools weren't offered to me in any other aspect of my life because traditionally still people see a psychologist when they're in crisis, worn out, burnt out, stressed, you know, suffering major grief or trauma, which is very much needed. I got someone on my team to help me perform mentally at my best because I was in sport and high-level sport and they were the tools I needed as, an, as a human being to learn and love all of myself. And then that was liberating. Like there is... For me, when I get out of bed in the morning, to be able to take my whole self everywhere I go is the biggest gift I've been given. And when I've been able to do that, people see it. And that's where the most incredible opportunities have come my way. And you would think it would be the opposite, right? When you leave that part about yourself home, um, you don't bring uniqueness. That's when people will see you. In fact, it's the other way around. Is it easy? No. But when you're prepared to be brave enough, um, and I say tough, you know, these are the tough skills to go inside and really learn about who you are. When you can do that, um, you know, that's ex- the extraordinary things that happen from there. It's, it's so worth it. Oh, I, just listening to that, the, it's like we've got things flipped around the wrong way, Katrina, because yeah. that's what we need to be giving our kids. Do you know what I mean? That, uh-huh. That's what we need in schools. We need them to have that positive self-talk, positive self-worth, love themselves, you know, be empathetic to others, be kind to themselves. All these things that the skills you got once you'd left that system that you needed as a young girl, when you're hiding everything, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like the way you've just said that it's all back to front. But because you're an elite, isn't it? Like, how do we change that? What, what, like, how does that? Because it's still happening. I think. I think there. What excites me is um, 
you know, the work that you're doing. Um, I know you, you know, there's people out there doing incredible work on, on resilience, on helping, um, you know, to bring gratitude into schools. It's so different. Um, I was speaking to a group of year 10s the other week and I said to them, are you learning this stuff? Because my feeling is there should be a subject from kindergarten right through to year 12 and it's called being human. And it's so like we all do this subject called being human. And as we progress, you, you learn things and add on to all of that. And I know I know, education system does teach a lot of great stuff. And these year 10 students, I said, are you learning much about yourselves? And um, how do you think that's going? They said, yeah, a little bit. We, you know, we do psychology at school. And I'm like, wow, that's even exciting. Like we couldn't, yeah. when I went through school, <laughs> I did math one, math two, chem, <laughs> physics, geography. Yep. Like nothing about learning about myself. Um, so I think we're, the shift has definitely happened. There is a lot more opportunity um, for young students to learn to learn these skills. I think it still needs to t- be turned up um, and be embedded. So not by choice you're getting psychology. Like you're actually, it's uh, this subject called being human I think is, is still not there and I would love to see it there because why aren't we taught about ourselves and how we work and, Yes, we need maths, understand that, but I think I'd rather learn about how my thinking works first um, before I add the maths equations on <laughs> before how to develop Pythagoras, self-compassion. Before you're algebra yeah. and Pythagoras, like that's, that's not helping that's anyone true. now. And I think like you're saying, you know, you had a midlife crisis at 18, like because you had yeah. to, you were forced to. And um, I know I was at 30 and I went through a really rough period. I'd, I had a breakdown and I think a lot of people either go through one of these stages and do something about it in a productive way or they don't address it and you know they start using other things to mask it yes. and, and like you said being yeah. being human builds that resilience so we can deal with it if, if that's what you're sort of saying yeah oh I couldn't agree more and um you know we we all have a story you know when when I speak to people they go um thanks for sharing your, your story I'm like mine mine this is my story but we all have a story right you've got one as well and 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 from what I've read um particularly when I look at where the most extraordinary leaders come from and it's it's the people that do have some sort of crisis or they have a challenge and that they take the time to really, you know, unpack it and reflect and grow from it. Um, and that's hard. It's, it's often easier just to, you know, push it under the carpet and leave it there and hope it doesn't come back. And, and I know for people in leadership positions, if you haven't dealt with some of that stuff, it will come up. It will come up at the right, you know, whether you want to keep it there, it won't stay there. <laughs> you can't hold it forever. No, and what I've read is that the the leaders that are able to take that really difficult failure or challenging time or crisis um, and grow from it and make meaning from it, they actually become extraordinary leaders. Um, And, yeah, like not everyone can do it, but there's, you know, there is opportunity if you're prepared to speak to people. I think that's the key. You don't have to do it all on your own. There's some great people out there that can you can talk to about things and you can um, understand um, what you can learn from these situations. Yeah. And like you just said, though, nobody's going to do it for you. You need to put the work in and do it yourself. Um, and I think that's why it's so liberating when you do put the work in, you come out the other side, you're like, wow, life's bloody brilliant. You know, why, <laughs> why, haven't, I, why haven't I been able to experience this, Katrina? Where has this been? And I can imagine that's what happens when you went to Atlanta. Um, let's talk about your career because it's incredible. You know, gold medals, silver medals, bronze medals, uh, carrying the flag in Sydney, can we give yourself, let, let's talk about that. Was that the best part of it all in Sydney? Um, 
the yeah I mean the experience of yeah I got to carry the torch into the stadium for the opening ceremony yeah. extraordinary yeah and like that's just up there as one of those things that goes wow did that really happen like you don't ever do anything for that purpose does that make sense like it's 100%. not like oh I'm going to be an athlete so I can and I even remember before the Sydney Games happened um, my husband competed in water polo at the Olympic Games and I remember watching the Sydney opening ceremony and seeing all these greats either carrying the, the flag or the the torch or you know being involved in the opening ceremony um, thinking, well, I wonder whenever, when does that happen to you? Because I had no idea I was going to do it two weeks later. They keep it really quiet. <laughs> really? Uh, so that yeah. you didn't know? Wow. I found out three <laughs> days before, like when you're in the village and three days before the opening ceremony, um, that's when we all found out. So there was five of us that, you know, I brought the torch into the stadium and passed on to Anthony Clark and it kept going to Kevin Coombs, to Michael Milton, um, and then Louise Savage lit the um the flame it was an extraordinary moment but we only found out three days before um so yeah so that that was yeah one of those moments that I yeah you just still look back on and go that's that for me that was extraordinary the the stuff on the track again is um you know I won gold at my first games in Atlanta which was just unreal like for one year and and this is where I have admiration admiration sorry to cut you off Katrina that's where like uh, it just blows my mind that you've gone from an yeah. 18 year old, your whole yep. life's been essentially, you probably think destroyed. You know what I mean? You've, you've got a disability. It's all done within a year. You're at Atlanta winning two gold medals and a silver. That is crazy. I know. Yeah, it, it was crazy. And for me, it was cra- It was such a crazy year from going from netball to athletics. And, and to be honest, I didn't really love athletics growing up I hated the gun because when you when you actually have cerebral palsy people wouldn't know this but we still have the startle reflex so everyone I compete against has it so when the, when a gun or a bang goes off we naturally jump if you have a baby if you have a baby that you grow out of this reflex but with having cerebral palsy which is a neurological condition you still have this one so you're at the start line and a gun goes off it's not the you know when you you just don't I didn't love that part about athletics and I never would win anything at school either. Like I was okay. I always did sports day, but I would come mid range um, in events because of course, like I'm not able. Right. Um, So when I went to Atlanta and got to compete against people, women like myself, that was the most extraordinary bit. I had never competed, never seen people like me before. And that's, you know, so when you think about it, I'd been competing at in able-bodied sport with a disability. So then when I actually get to compete on a level playing field with people with a disability like me, my hard work had paid off. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. Every moment of it um, to experience that level playing field was extraordinary. And, you know, there's a message in that because there's so many young people with disabilities out there. And particularly when you get to 12, or 13 and all of your peers start to grow and strengthen and that's where you might not realize you're as good anymore but you're comparing yourself to other people that you you'll never race against and so a lot of we know a lot of kids drop out of sport because of that yet I could have too um but if someone told me at 12 or 13 that my times that I was running in athletics if they could have told me that mine were yeah that I'm actually a future Paralympic champion it would have been different story so that's happening now which is exciting but for me it all happened so quickly um and Dola you know people expected me to do well and I did but then for the next eight years I won silver like 
and bronze. Like uh, it took me eight years to get back to a gold medal level. And so Paralympic movement, um, my competitors were extraordinary. There was money coming into the sport. Some of my competitors from the Ukraine, China, they're earning, you know, if they won a gold medal in, say, my last race in Athens, they would have run won $100,000. So, wow. you know, we never had medal incentive. We, particularly in Australia, we were doing it because we loved it. We got small support, but it was nothing like that. And so you're starting to compete against a world that if they win, their life is changed. So it became very competitive and the Paralympic movement was getting known. And um, so for me, it was difficult to get back to a gold medal level. Um, and I had to, you know, employ a lot of different strategies to get back to that in Athens, which was, you know, to win in Athens in the 400 metres after eight years of winning silver to get back to that gold medal level again. That was my favourite, favourite moment. Yeah. And, and was that, that was the pinnacle, you know, like you'd set your sights, you wanted to go out there that you're like, I've achieved enough now. And, and that yeah. feeling is what you wanted to finish on. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it, you know, there was a big learning for me in Sydney. I, um, I didn't even PB in Sydney, run a personal best in any of my events in Sydney. And that was really disappointing for me um, because, you know, if anyone's listening and knows sport, that's all we aim for as athletes is to PB at a competition. Because what, what else can you do? If you've done that, you can't do anything else. So if you PB, you've got to come away and go, even if that didn't medal, I still PB. That's extraordinary, right? Um, and so after Sydney, I, I actually felt like I'd failed because I didn't PB in a sense. And so I remember sitting down with my sports psychologist and looking at the situation going, well, why didn't I? And I had taken on so many um, opportunities that had come my way. So by winning gold in Atlanta, not that I became famous, but I did become a little bit more known and a lot more opportunities had come my way. And I love to help people. That's like my number one value of love and kindness. Um, and I just love helping people. So if people ask me to help, I'd just say yes. And so in my lead up to Sydney, my psychologist said, Katrina, you are doing so much. Like there's no way you can perform at a PB. You are just doing way too much. She said, look at everything you're doing. You're performing at a silver level, if not worse level, which is still a good level. There was nothing wrong with it. She said, but if you're happy with silver, keep doing things as they are. But I can tell for you, you haven't got to your best. So you're going to make, you know, you're going to have to make some significant changes. So in those moments, you know, I'm really grateful of my sporting career where things weren't going as I planned, Sydney, I learned so much about myself and in that next four years made serious changes that are still helping me now. Like actually to learn to say no, which I'd never been taught and I hadn't been taught how to say no with love and kindness. Yep. And once I found that language, um, it, it still allows me now to perform, um, you know, as good as I can without taking on too much. Mm, well, I think what you're just saying there that, the power of saying no is that power going back to the way you treat yourself and being kind to yourself. You yeah. know, it really is, isn't it? It's as basic yeah. as it comes. Yeah. Setting boundaries is actually, yeah, you having that self-worth um, and um, and knowing that it is absolutely kind um, to set those boundaries. In fact, you mentioned Brene Brown before and one of her quotes, one of absolute favourite quotes of hers she um, talks about, I don't know if you've read some of the work she did around compassion. And um, for a lot of people, they have this myth that compassion is 
compassionate people are, really selfless, that they, you know, they give of everyone else before they give to themselves. In fact, the research she found was the opposite. Um, And one of her quotes, which I absolutely love, says, compassionate people ask for what they need. They say no when they need to. And when they say yes, they mean it. They're compassionate because their boundaries keep them out of resentment. Mm. And oh, I just love that one. That yeah. that drives my work every day. And I don't want to be known for being resentful. So if I find resentment has crept into my life again, I go, oh, okay. <laughs> where were you not brave enough to let people know what you need or where were you not brave enough to say no to that? Um, yeah, that's been, Brene's been, Brene Brown has been incredible in helping me understand myself um, particularly what you mentioned before, she helped me to navigate what my shame was and put yeah. words to yeah. it, and also realised that I have incredibly have developed incredible shame resilience through my story um, as well. Well, I've got no doubt, and like you just said, resentment comes when you haven't had the courage to do what is right for you, and then you end up pushing that on other people. And I'm sure people have been listening to this, Katrina, the whole way through, nodding along with so many things. Like not everyone's got no disability. Not everybody's had to go through what you've gone through, but everybody faces hurdles in life. And if we haven't overcome something in the last two years, I want to know who you are because that's absolute BS. You know, there's been things you've overcome. So I can imagine that people are just nodding along because everything is hit home. Messages are so true. So when you look back and I know you're speaking all over the world now, you've got an amazing career, you've overcome adversity at such a young age. Um, What are you most proud of? Like, and do you allow yourself to sit back and say, I'm bloody good. I've done this or pat yourself on the back. Like, What are you most proud of so far? Oh gosh. Um, Yeah. Look for me, if I do go back to what I'm most proud of would be actually learning to love um, and accept myself, to be honest, without it being material or an award. I'm so proud of that. I'm so proud that I, um, you know, I was able to reach out and, and learn tools and digest them and apply them to myself um, and to really find my true nature and, and to celebrate that and to to take that wherever I go around the world and and that's what I'm proudest of to be honest because I know when I've been able to to share that with people that helps them to realize that um we all have we all have that ability we're born with our true nature and then somewhere the murkiness of life and you know, um, we create all this sufferings for myself and or we, we create suffering for ourselves. And so the more we can explore about how we actually function um, and have tools in our kit, that, you know, that is what I'm really proud of. Um, if you were to ask me maybe events or things that I've been a part of, um, I had an opportunity to speak at the UN in 2006 um that was extraordinary I um you know got to speak and have my own name plaque and you know speak and have my 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 speech um interpreted in so many different languages I got to meet Kofi Annan and um shared the stage with Roger Federer and that's really special because I got to speak it was the closing ceremony of the International Year of Sport and Physical Activity for the UN and they were using sport and physical activity as a vehicle to promote peace development health and education around the world 
And so I had about six minutes to speak and to speak about how powerful sport had been for me and the benefits of it. And I also got to um, tell and, you know, at the UN that countries moving forward, if they were to put their sporting plans together, that they needed to include everybody, that everybody had the right to to play sport and be, and be involved in sport. Um, everybody, everybody, which, you know, particularly people with disabilities. So I'm really proud of that because that was my first moment of being able to advocate and speak up in a leadership capacity around inclusion. Um, and so that was a wonderful moment. Oh, I've got no doubt. And on, on a very, very large scale as well. Um, I want to know, last sort of question before we wrap up, because I'm aware of the time. Um, doing a TED Talk's hard enough to shrink what you might message into 15 minutes. On, on that stage, you wrote video, six or seven minutes? That's even harder. I know. I know, isn't it? But like yeah. to do my TED Talk, I had 14 minutes and that's one of the hardest things I've ever done. I, I practiced a thousand, thousand times. I tell you what, though, what you do learn from having a shorter speech is you learn to really be good with your words mm. and you really just get to the point. Um, so the shorter your speeches are so hard, aren't they? I know yes, I've got to nice. do it. I've got to do a 10 minute one tonight at an award ceremony. And for me, that's so much harder to do 10 minutes than if I had an hour tonight. Um, because you have to be really, really good with your words. So I hear you. Um, the UN won, yeah, and it had to be, you know, there's no chance there for, for being um, not on time. So oh, I, could, um... I could imagine <laughs> being kicked off the stage. <laughs> but what was going for me then was, you know, I had already been speaking for quite some time. Um, I was known as a, as a speaker and I remember speaking to Federer before and he um, he said to me, I'm so comfortable in, you know, doing a speech on the court after a game. Like that's where he's happy to speak. But to do what he was about to do at the UN was really out of his comfort zone. Um, he said, I'm, you know, I'm not someone naturally that enjoys keynote speaking, but you can interview me anytime after a game. So, um, so that was interesting um, to be able to share both how we're feeling um, in that situation. Well, and it just shows too that everybody is human. Like at the end of the day, right. everybody's got their own skill sets. Everyone does things <laughs> differently and they've got good things. Roger may be probably one of the greatest of all time, but it's that's nice to that's know right. that he gets a little bit nervous. I know. It gave me hope. I'm like, oh, is Roger's that nervous? I might do a right here because. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Anyway, um, all right, Katrina. Fun. So where can we find you? If now people, I'd love you to go and check out, obviously, your TED Talk. Um, I'll have links in the show notes. But where else is the best place? Because you're running amazing events with New Day, your website, you're speaking all over the world. Where can Where's the best place to find you? Yeah, if you Google Katrina Webb, uh, my website will come up, katrinaweb.com.au is where people can um, find me and find out what's going on in my world. Um, if they would like to follow, the easiest place to find me. Perfect. All right. Well, I have links in the show notes, episode number 266. And um, I think my thing, uh, incredible chat, Katrina, and I really appreciate you sharing everything. Um, I know the impact of your story is having on people. But the one thing I want to finish with is don't speak to somebody a psychologist or somebody just if your life's hit rock bottom. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you said, talking to people is a, a beautiful tool and don't use it when you're in turmoil. And I, I think that was one thing I've really taken away from everything you've mentioned. 
Yeah. And if I can add to that, think of our mental health, like our physical health. So if you're doing stuff for your mental, uh, for your physical fitness on a daily basis, really challenge you yourself and think, what am I doing for my mental fitness on a daily basis? You know, are you practicing some mindfulness? Are you practicing some self-compassion or have you got some tools where you're able to challenge some of your negative thoughts or really be able to positive reframe some of your thinking? Um, there are so many wonderful books, TED Talks, um, people out there that you can learn from. This is the you know, information age. Uh, yes, we can go see psychologists and I still see one and I love it. I see one every seven weeks and I really, I love to work out if there's anything else that I could do mentally to perform at my best. Um, so we can do that. And there are daily practices that we all can do as a preventative to really bring our best mental health. So true. And I love this quote. People say that motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why I recommend it daily. And you smell most people and they smell bloody good because they bathe. Well, you need to do the same for health and happiness. So Katrina, absolutely love our chat today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I know this story is going to help so many. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Dale.